Please be seated. All right. Please be seated. Perfect. Well, God bless you. It's good to see you all this evening. Um, just a couple things I want to share in my heart before we, we get into our study. So today is, uh, as you know, is the inauguration, right? So I know, um, I just have a couple things I want to share with you on this. So I know that folks coming from different aspects of this day have different, uh, some people are celebrating and some people are not so happy, right? I mean, that happens every four years, uh, unless you have a two-term president. Um, I think this inauguration was a little different because there was a lot of chatter about whether there would be something else additional to the normal government that we had, right? Would there be, uh, you know, this idea of whether the good guys would, you know, come in and over, you know, state and stand the government there in a way that would um, reveal all this information and different things. And, and for those that were following that, you know, and tracking with that. The thing that was always interesting to me, and, you know, my wife and I, we were talking, like, wonder if this is real. Is it a conspiracy? You, know, you watch some of these things, and pretty convincing sometimes. You know, and you start to process this information, and you start to say, well, okay, Lord. And it seems good, right? I mean, but it just, for me, it just confirms in my heart once again that the only perfect, righteous God is the one in heaven, and he's coming to earth when he comes again. And to look, to look to a political leader as a savior or someone that's going to fix things, no matter how much we want there to be heaven on earth, that doesn't happen according to scripture until, really, the millennial reign. And so I think we need to just prepare our hearts for that, that these next four years could go in a very different direction than maybe some of us would like, okay? But I want you to understand scripturally and biblically that <clears throat> these things need to be. I was really struggling a couple days ago. I, I was sitting with a, a brother in the Lord. We, we spent three hours together just uh, talking about scripture and and as I was doing that, I was going through and I was saying, you know, if these things are actually true, and I was just sharing this with the team, the worship team, I said, if these things be true, all these things we're hearing about whether, you know, the inauguration is going to happen or not happen and all this stuff, I said, you know, I'm really struggling because it just doesn't line up with Scripture. And so many people were saying, but what do you mean? And I'm saying, I just, I'm struggling. I, I, I'm a student of the Bible. My God told me to look into the Word of God and it's it's always true. Over half of his prophecies have already been fulfilled, and he's caught it right every single time. And it said in Matthew 24, and, and I understand Matthew 24 in context is talking to the Jewish people, and in very particular, there's no single sign for the rapture. You do understand that, right? I need everybody here to understand that tonight. That's very important eschatologically and end times. There's so many people today, and, I, and even well-meaning, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, I'm going to say it that way that are saying, well, we're at these last days, and we are in the last, last days, but we're there because of these signs. There are no signs when it comes to the rapture. It's an imminent return. 
And it could be right now before we even finish here tonight. But so many people take Matthew 24 and passages like that, and they say, well, we're seeing more earthquakes. We're seeing these things. Yes, that is speaking to when Christ physically comes back to earth and establishes his kingdom, right? Before, well, actually, it's speaking really to the Great Tribulation, to a peace treaty for seven years that will be initiated. That's what it begins to speak, the woes. And then it's what we call the Great Tribulation is three and a half years into that, right? Daniel 9. So it's just important that as we live in these last days, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to speak more about it. it just reminds me when when they said hey jesus is over here jesus is over there jesus and 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 there's a great delusion there's a great falling away in the church because i believe the reason the lord told us that is because of biblical literacy because people aren't studying and reading their bibles devotionally they're not they're not even coming to church they're not studying the word of god in churches right and it's just been top of mind for me and, and on my heart to say, look, this next president, we, we need to pray for him. Whether you, whether you voted for him or you didn't, you need to pray for him. One, for salvation. I don't know that he's saved, okay? That's the first thing. We should pray for everyone to get saved. But I'll, but I'll say another reason, and, and it's, it's very interesting to me, because when I read my Bible and I read in the Old Testament, there were actors on the scene like Nebuchadnezzar. And God used him to bring a correction or to bring change to a people because that people were seeking after all the wrong things. Israel was practicing idolatry. Now, I know this is hard to believe in parallel, you know, with parallel with America right now, right? Just maybe these last four years, we did see men and women come to Christ. But maybe it's through the oppression and affliction. Maybe it's going to be through this difficulty that we will see the revival that we've all prayed for. I just know that when you look at that, as we sang here tonight, and our sister was led to put this up by the leading of the Holy Spirit, you know, through the nation's rage. I mean, we sang this. And I, I don't know about you. I was sitting here, and I was like, yes, Lord. This is exactly the times we're in. And, and kingdom rise and fall. There is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God, he is the ancient of days. And I'm concerned that in the last four years, so many people have put their faith and trust in a political leader rather than in Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage us no different than when the last administration was there, right? A lot of great things were done, in my opinion, personally, okay? This next administration, maybe they're going to do things that I, I don't personally like. It doesn't matter what I like. What is God going to allow, and how is that going to be used for his glory? We have to put our eyes on Jesus. If not, all our hope is lost. But we're not hopeless because he's the ancient of days and every single promise has come true that he said would be and therefore these things needs be and I still believe we're living in the last days that hasn't changed and we're living in the last of the last days and that still hasn't changed I just believe that we could go home at any moment 
And there's nothing that has to be done for that to happen. And I want to see the church live like it. We get so caught up in our citizenship, but our citizenship's heavenly. The kingdom of God first, and then America, right? It's near and dear to us. We're patriots, aren't we? I love this country, but I love God more. And I'm here, and you are here, to lead people to Jesus Christ, to bring him glory and honor. Let us not lose our focus and mission despite who's on the throne, okay? On earth, I'm speaking. We know King God, King is always on the throne. All right, amen? Now, I will say that, and I will also add another statement, just that I've never had a chance to talk to you but uh, about this. If there was ever an emergency or an emergency system or something that was dispatched, Look, we're living in those days. I, I'm not going to put it past happening, okay? Uh, emergency broadcast, something like that. If there's something like that was to ever happen in the future, right? Some people were looking maybe today or yesterday thought that would happen. I would love us to meet down at the church. One, we have food and we can feed people and help people. But number two, we need to pray. We need to worship. You know, if you hear that the nuclear codes and China's throwing missiles or whatever's coming our way, don't fret. Get in your car and drive down and bring your guitar, man, because we're going to worship Jesus. All right? We're going to worship in spirit and truth because nothing's going to change for you and I. Our salvation is secure. Our God's on the throne, and he's coming. Amen? Amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. And if it's a multi-day disaster, come down every day. Because <laughs> we're going to be here. I'll tell you, we're going to come down here. We're going to have the lights on. We're going to worship. And I want all you to come in, and that parking lot should be full so that when we get raptured, it's, uh, people can come and have a used car lot. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 3, we're going to bow our heads in prayer. And uh, we'll get started here. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that you are in control of every single event. Every single event, Lord. I, I know there's so many prayers for our country, Lord. And Jesus, we pray, please help. Help us in these last days, God, that we, we know we're overcomers, Lord. You've told us that. Be with us. Let us be faithful, Lord. Let us be that church of Philadelphia that you wrote about in Revelation there, Lord. We can't do it without you, Jesus. Let us have just tremendous joy, Lord. I'm so joyful to be alive and to be able to read your word and to worship with my brothers and sisters and to lift your name on high, God, and to be faithful in these last days. I'm excited for what's coming, Lord because it's just one moment closer to being with you for eternity. And like you say in your word, these things needs be. These things needs be. You're just making it easier not to let earth become sticky. Nothing holds me here, Lord. Nothing wants me. I don't want to stay here. There's nothing holding me. I'm ready to be with you, Jesus. I think we all are, Lord. So we pray, come quickly, Lord. But in the meantime, in between time, Jesus, can we 
be about your business and will you, will you strengthen us with your Holy Spirit that we will make every moment count. We will redeem the time wherever we are, whatever we do from this moment forward here tonight, Lord, it'll all be for you. Every moment, every second of our lives will be consumed with your kingdom, with your love, your mercy, your grace, and your truth. And may we share them with every single person that will say hello to us, Lord. Talk to us. Create those divine appointments, God. We want to be faithful and we're ready to be used in these last days, whatever may come to us. We just ask you to protect our families. Protect this church. Protect the body of Christ all around the world. And Lord, we lift this president up to you. Lord, that if he's not saved, you'll save him. And Lord, I pray that him and this vice president, their eyes would be opened and they would begin to want to follow and set law that would honor the scriptures, that would honor you, Jesus. And we could be a beacon of light to the rest of the world, Lord. Until then, we look to Jerusalem, Lord. We look to you, Jesus. And we pray all this in your holy name, almighty God, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen, amen. All right. We've come as far as chapter 3 here in Second Samuel. Last we left, um, we saw sort of a civil war going on at this point where he had uh, Joab meeting up with Abner. And Abner had taken the high ground because he uh, met up with some of the Benjaminites and they kind of came and were going to help him, right? And, um, you know, Joab sort of stands down, right? He, he you know, Abner calls for a, a ceasefire, you know, and uh, that's verse 27. And he kind of sort of stands down instead of having this long, bloody civil war. We then received the counts that, you know, when these men got together, uh, I mean, it's a civil war because it's Israel. It's the northern versus the southern tribes, right? The Judah versus basically the other nations or the, excuse me, the other tribes within Israel, I meant to say. And we, we read that, you know, basically Judah, well, David at this point in his 20, they lost about 20 men, and the rest of the tribes of Israel lost somewhere around 360, 360 men. And so we know that um, Joab's brother, which is actually David's nephew, Ashel, uh, he was buried in his father's tomb, which is uh, in Bethlehem. And now there's going to be this long war between this house of Saul and the house, uh, you might say, of David here. But um, we're going to turn our attention to chapter 3, verse 1. And it's, you know, it's, it's tough to weed through this because our natural reaction, just to read this, is not to like Abner, right? He's a bully. He's a bully. I mean, he, he's, you know, he raised up. You know, the rest, all of Israel should have come, and, you know, David was to be king, anointed by God, uh, anointed by the prophet Samuel while he was alive. But Abner, wanting to, you know, from Saul's house, uses, you know, his other son that's still alive, tries to prop him up. Really, he's calling the shots behind the scenes, though. Abner is. And so this creates this civil war and this infighting. And that's not God's plan. That's not God's plan. And so... We're going to see here very quickly that this is going to ultimately lead to Joab murdering Abner. And that's what it was. It was cold-blooded murder. It wasn't like when Abner had killed, Ash, you know, Ashil because Ashil was trying to attack Abner, remember? And Abner in self-defense killed 
Ashel, Ashel, which is um, Abishai and Joab's brother, again, David's nephews. So he's going to go over and he's going to kind of try to be the kinsman, you know, avenger that way, the avenger of blood. But he has no right to do that. That's not biblical. That was not how it was supposed to be done because he was defending himself, Abner. Even though this guy's a bully and we're kind of like, but the reality is Joab had no right to take his life. And what that's going to lead to is David basically pronouncing upon Joab um, and his children, his nephew's family, a most horrific, uh, now I don't want to use the word uh, curse because that would be the wrong word, but just terrible things that would happen to his family because of his lack of faithfulness, because of murder, because he broke the law. And so let's, let's read through this, and this will all make a little bit more sense. But Now, there was a long war, verse 1, between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And again, we understand why, because, you know, Saul's family was no longer anointed, right? They were not anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, God was not leading them. We know that David, the crown, the mantle had passed to David, and that was God's design. Verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. Now, Hebron is the capital for David at this point. Uh, Jerusalem is not the capital yet. We'll read about that soon where it will become the capital from the Jebusites because he'll go in and he'll fight against them. But at this point, Hebron is. And Hebron, if you know your map, it's very south. So it's not central the way Jerusalem's central even today, Jerusalem being the capital of Israel, central sort of, right? You could, not exactly in the middle, but it's definitely more central. Whereas Hebron's way south, so people that would want to come from the north or a different place to worship, they'd have to travel all the way down and not in a central location. So I believe, you know, David had his eyes on uh, Jerusalem this whole time, knowing that, one, just even the location, if you've ever been to Israel and you know Jerusalem, it's surrounded on three sides, right, by valleys. I mean, one, from a, just a defensive posture, it's a wonderful setup because they can't really attack you. You have the high ground on three sides, and I'm sure David, being you know a soldier that way, a military man, was thinking about those things, but also being that it's set high up, too. So it says, The sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chilib, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Micah, or Micaiah, the daughter of Talmi, king of Gersher. Now, I don't know if you caught that there, and you might want to underline in your Bible. This is the first time we see a marriage in Israel for political reasons. You might be saying, what? Well, look right there. The king of Gersher, right? So what it appears is David had married uh, the daughter of Talmi, right, which is the king of Gersher, and it seems that he had married her for some type of political alliance that way. But was that God's plan? Was God's plan that Israel was to intermarry with the nations so that there could be uh, political, uh, you know, I don't know the right word, political, uh, you know, royal family kind of favors and citizens and things like that? No, that wasn't God's plan. Israel is to be holy and set apart and to be used as a witness by God that Israel would stand with the Lord, and the other nations would see that and want to turn to the one true God. But we actually see that he marries here. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggai, or Haggith, excuse me, the fifth, 
Shephatiah, the son of Abitel, and the sixth, Ithrim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, this is not a complete list. If, when we get to, if the Lord should tarry, we get to first uh, Chronicles chapter 3, right around verse 1, we'll get a more complete list. But if you want to write in the margin of your notes for a completer list, write First Chronicles 3, 1, and you can go back and see a list of all of David's children's there, right? But th- these are his firstborn sons listed by wife here, more or less. That's what we're just reading. Verse 6, Now it was so while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? So first of all, this this man, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, the uh, pictures here, and as we read through Scripture, he's, he's kind of pictures like this weak, kind of not a very strong man with a strong kind of uh, conscience that way to stand up. But in this moment, he confronts Abner about something uh, atrocious here. And you may be reading it and kind of not tracking necessarily what is the big deal or what was going on. Not only is it obviously sexually immorality, right, having sexual relations with a king's concubine, right? So that was King Saul's concubine in particular, or for that matter, even his wife. Either one of those would certainly have been sin, the sin of adultery. But, but even besides that, in, the, in that time, if you wanted to demonstrate you had power or that you were more powerful than the, your adversary or you try to demonstrate to the to people, if you had conquered a nation, if you had taken the throne, if you had you know, achieved power, the concubines or the wives like that, you would go in and you would have sexual relations with that ship with them, demonstrating that basically you now occupy the throne. That in essence, you are the one in true power. So Ishbosheth, obviously the king at this, well, not really by God, but by man, by Abner, what was going on at this point is he's really disrespecting Ibosheth right? Because Abner's going in and taking it upon himself to do something that, to do something that would have, you know, not have normally, you know, been tolerated or or done. And so he's going to turn around and he's going to have a conversation with him. And he says, why have you gone into my father's concubine? He confronts him. Now, if you're looking at this and saying, well, boy, this kind of sounds familiar, right? Hold your finger here. Turn to 2 Samuel 16, right? And when we get there in a few weeks or months, and you look at verse 20, we'll read that this very thing happened when David fled because his son Absalom, right, is going to try to take over power that way. And he's going to uh, go to Ahithophel, and he's going to try to ask Ahithophel for, like, wisdom. What should I do? kind of being a counselor that way. And if you look at verse 21 in chapter 16, it said, And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubine who is left to keep the house, and Israel will hear that you have abhorred by your father. Then you are abhorred by your father. Then, sorry, my, my reading, I apologize. Then the hand of all who, will, who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom. On the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubine in the sight of all Israel. Now, that sounds odd, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like a public display of, you know, just 
all wrong in all kinds of way, right? But what this was, was this is a public display because again, in that culture, in that time, basically he's up on a rooftop, you know, they put a tent area and more or less the people understand that this act is going on, which would have been an act of what we would describe today as treason, you might say. It would have been an act of treason that way. Well, at that time, what was Absalom trying to communicate to all Israel at that time? That he was now the king and that David was no longer king. And so he went into his, you know, father's uh, concubine that way. Do you, do you understand where I'm going? So we get an example of it and we see it in another place. But, but at that time, it was very well known that it was an affront. It was, a, it was incredibly disrespectful, not to mention sinful and sexually immoral. But just even in the face of what was going on, it was incredibly insulting. It says in verse 8, Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Now, if you read that, you might be thinking, Oh, I like dogs and puppies, and they're cute, and not in, you know, not in the, this time, you know, thousands of years ago. These animals, dogs were considered dirty. They were considered wild. They roamed, right? Sometimes they even were, uh, you know, thought of uh, homosexual. They, they would use, am I a dog like that? They would speak even to that. Or it would also speak to, like, a dog to its vomit, a fool, or something like that. It, it kind of it was an idiom of that day. Am I like a dog? Is he basically saying, am I wild like that? Am I, am I that low? I mean, if we kind of would use our terms, you know, am I that kind of a guy? You would think I'm that, that wild and low that I would do, you know, that you would can talk to me this way. Basically saying to Ishbosheth, after all I've done for you, I established this kingdom in your name. Your dad, Saul, I was faithful to him, and now he's dead, and I came, and I established this kingdom for you. Instead of going and having these guys follow David, and this is how you repay me? You, re you rebuke me? You challenge me because I go in to your father's concubine? And Ishbosheth is saying, absolutely. Because you know what you're really saying? You're really saying you're the one in the control, and I'm the puppet. That's what's really being communicated here. Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with fault concerning this woman? I've done everything for you, everything for you. Never, ever question me. We know people like that, don't we? Governments like that. My God, do so to Abner. Well, I just... You know, just picture this whole conversation, this feud that's going on, right? As I'm thinking about this, Abner's what's going to happen, he's going to quickly say, well, forget it then. If that's how you're going to act, then I'll give my loyalty and I'll go to David. I'll go to David and we'll see where you'll be at without me. I mean, basically, that's what's going to happen after he turned around and he bought, brought this charge or fault against him. And he's saying over this woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. See, that tells us something very interesting. Abner knew, right? He was Saul's general, but even he knew that David was the rightful king of Israel. So when he turned around and he was trying to prop up Ishbosheth, he knew he wasn't king, but he was doing it so that he could assume power and authority 
That was really what Abner was up to. That's why I say in some ways he's like this bully, right? Not somebody that you'd look to his character. You don't want to be around a guy like that. You know, it kind of just turns you off, somebody like this. But at the same time, what Joab's about to do, two wrongs don't make a right. So he says, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, and he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. He was the puppet, and he fulfilled that role. He would not stand up, and he had no place to stand because he was not the rightful king. He was not anointed by Samuel. He was not called by God. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Who, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And it's really sad because if Ishbosheth would have just yielded to God, knowing that David was the rightful king, it, his life would have been spared. Eventually, what's going to happen, and we're going to read it, he's going to go, and as he's taking his siesta, you know, a noontime nap, he's going to get stabbed in the stomach, and he's going to bleed out and die like that. And all because he listened to poor counsel. He listened to Abner, who Abner said, oh, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. Is God calling us to do it? Does God want us to walk in those steps? He says, my hand shall be with you and bring to all Israel with you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face until, unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now, where did that come from? Who was Michael? Do you remember? That was, Fall, that was David's first wife. Saul had given uh, David Michael in marriage, and, you know, because obviously David was wandering in the wilderness, he was then, you know, Michael, she was then given to another man illegally again because they were married before God that was not, should not have been taken away from him. There was nothing right there. But he goes on and says, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. In other words, if you're going to come with me, then bring my wife. Then bring my wife. Now, I have to imagine, you know, uh, scholars and, and probably you all here tonight, you're asking the question, David, you've got Abigail. You've got other wives. Why are you thinking about Michael right now? Why in the middle of, first of all, why are you making a covenant with this guy? That's the first thing, right, David? This is not, one of the things we learn about David when we study his character traits is that he really wasn't, he really wasn't one to always stand up. He would stand up for what was right, but he wasn't one to enforce something that was necessarily wrong. You know, he would, he would kind of have those moments of compromise, right? We would see those things that, not glaring, but in David's life, he would have those moments of compromise. You know, we obviously think of Bathsheba and sin like that. But I mean, even different things of like when he went down to the land of the Philistines. Right? Remember we read that? Just there's moments where David just, he just, boy, he, he was talking with God. He'd be walking with God. And all of a sudden, David, what are you doing? You know, I, I'd write in my, my margin sometimes, David, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing, David? What, what, you know, but I have to imagine, and I sometimes do this. I don't know if you do this. You meditate on the word of God. I, I, these are real men, real women. This has happened. This is actual history. It's anointed. And I think about what it would have been like if, if I was David 
and I had to flee. And I took these 600 men with me. We're, we're in the wilderness and we're going, you know, camp to camp or cave to cave that way. And knowing that my wife was taken from me, right, that I couldn't be with her, how that must have hurt him and just absolutely ripped him apart, destroyed him to know that he couldn't be with her. It's been almost 20, well, by the time we get down here, it'll be almost 20 years that he hasn't been with Michael. He hasn't been with his wife that way. And so I don't know, maybe a part of it was he just longed for her. You know, he, he missed her. He, he said, that's my wife. You know, I, it was one thing when I wasn't occupying Israel and I was in the land of the Philistines, but I'm in Israel now. Where's my wife? You know, I, I want my wife, you know. I, I don't know what he's thinking. Or, or was it to get even? Was it, was it to get even with Ishbosheth and the family? I, I can't answer that. We, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I, I know the Bible always just says this. Always, we are always to think good of a man. We're always to think good or proper of someone until being proved wrong. So I don't want to think of David of uh, saying here tonight, well, you know, he was trying to get even. I don't want to think that way because I don't have a reason in Scripture right now to think any other way than he just longed to be with his wife. He wanted his, his first wife back. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, this poor guy, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. Don't you laugh at him. And Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. You all are sick. You people that are laughing are sick. You ain't right. Some of you are laughing like, Man, this poor guy loves his wife. He doesn't have the backdrop and context of what's going on. And he's following a while, his wife, and he's turning around and she's being taken from him. He's heartbroken. Now, I got to wonder, you think David might have known this? I don't know. Maybe he didn't know she was remarried. I, he knew he was given to another, but he may not know of who. But what does Abner do? Again, the bully. Now, Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel. You know, basically, Abner says, hey, get out of here. Go right? Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. Don't you just feel bad for this guy? I feel bad for this guy. Now, Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines in the hand of all their enemies. Isn't that interesting? All of a sudden, Abner comes clean. He knows all of this. He knew exactly what God had called David and Israel, but it didn't suit him before because it was a power struggle. Do you see the, just the corruption of men? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's, that's why I even said, even with this administration or the previous administration and what we were hoping for or what, you know, we need to look to Jesus because you look to a man or you look to a government, you're always going to be disappointed. I'm always going to be disappointed because no matter how much they try to paint a picture of heaven on earth, it cannot be. And the minute you do hear peace, peace and security or peace and safety, first of all, I don't think we're going to be here to hear that because then sudden destruction, right? Maybe we will for just that moment and see some of that, but then sudden destruction because Matthew 24 is the second coming. Is nothing doesn't even mention the rapture in Matthew 24. 
So just think about that for a minute. Then sudden destruction. That's why, man, we don't need to be looking to political leaders to, to somehow save us. We need to look to Jesus. We need to be on our knees praying for God to revive this country, to revive this land, to turn around and fight against the evil, the spiritual warfare, the demonic powers that are principalities in power over areas trying to wage evil. It is a spiritual battle that is going on right now. And we cannot fight it, as he said. It's not a battle of what? Flesh and blood. And yet we think that's where the battle's fought. And I'm just as guilty. I think the battle's fought, right? I get upset. I get out. I'm, you know, I, I get on my knees. That's where I'm going to fight. That's If I want America to be the land of the free, I want America to be a place where it honors God's word and puts scripture all over the place, then I do my fighting on my knees. Because it's a battle spiritually. Now, certainly I'll stand in line and more than happy to stand with my, you know, sign to say, no, I'm not cool with this. But I'm prayed up. I'm prayed up with the Lord. I've met with God. I'm fighting my battle on my knees. And we need to be on our knees with everything going on in this country. I mean, such... And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. <clears throat> then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron. All that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. What are they doing? They're celebrating the covenant. They're celebrating the covenant that Abner made with David. And that was common of the custom of that day. Also common in the custom, if you invited somebody to come stay with you, very much today in the Middle East, in Israel, it's the same way today. Uh, not only around Israel, but even the Bedouin people. If you are invited in the Middle East to come stay or to come be with a family, and do, they are responsible for you. You are their guest. They are going to make sure not only are you safe in your meals, but they're not just going to make sure that you're safe when you travel, but even to get back to your location, your next location you're going to. Until you are handed off to your next host, you and they are responsible for you. I like that, actually. You know, when I went on a missions trip to Central America, we had a, a, a kind of, they have tribes there in, in Central America, different areas you can go between. And I remember as we would, I don't want to say hand it off, I don't want to disrespect the people that way, but as we were in the jungle in that one area and we were giving, you know, preaching the word, uh, going around, um, and we would worship and we were teaching the young people how to uh, minister to their own people. So teaching them how to read the word. We were teaching them how to do VBSs in their own uh, villages. And then we were taking guitars and going around, and we'd be singing. We'd be knocking on the huts and the doors because their huts are off the ground because they flood over there all the time. And they're very small, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a third world. It's, I mean, for breakfast, it's sugar water. You know, if you got rice once a day, you were blessed. If you had a protein like meat, you were very wealthy, very wealthy. And, and they would, when we were there, I think every night there was a protein. I mean, that's how they take care of their guests. And we were preaching the word and they didn't care. They'd come out and, you know, we were in a building that, uh, I call it a building, it wasn't, it was, it, was, uh, it was basically like steel, you know, the steel you put on the sides, of, where they basically put steels with a couple four by four posts 
so you could at least be under it and not be rained on. And a couple hundred kids would come up, and, you know, we would do VBA. We'd do dramas with them, right? So we'd, you'd get them to act out the Bible so that you understood that they understood it. In their culture, that was how they explained that they understood what you just taught. They wouldn't recite it back to you orally, but they would act it out with you. And so, you know, uh, calming the winds, you know, the, the sea that way, and the winds, and Jesus, you know, they'd be up there. I remember, I, you know, the kids, they'd come up there, and they'd get very excited, and they all wanted to take a turn. You know, what would it be like if you were in the boat with Jesus? And, man, what an awesome memory. But when they would bring you to one tribal area, and then you would go to this next village to minister there, you would, you would be safe. Never once did I worry about, you know, my safety or the people that were with us on the mission trip. There was only, I think, 15, 15 of us, 16 of us. We could have easily disappeared. I mean, and nobody would have been the wiser. But, and there were cartels and drugs. We knew where they were because you saw them. They walked around with their guns. I mean, it's not hidden, you know, like here, you know, you don't know who's, oh no, you know who's there and you know what they're doing. And it's very obvious. And, uh, and you just, they do their thing and you stay out of their way kind of deal. And, uh, but as we would go, when you were going between the two areas, you were technically vulnerable. I mean, if you were, but what they did is they would walk you from the village and then the person that was leading that village or they would hand you to the next person that was leading. And then once they welcomed you in, you were safe again. You didn't have to worry about it. I mean, you could sleep right out on the, you know, in the middle of the wood, in the jungle like that, just looking at the stars and there's no bathrooms. I mean, you use the out, you know, so you just be sitting out there and you're not worried about your life at all because they would jump in front of you if a spear or an arrow or something was coming at you. I mean, that's how serious, that's what this culture was like. So I want, I'm, I'm telling you all that to paint the picture, to give you that movie in your mind. So I want you to picture this. Abner's coming in, understanding that custom that he's coming to David's house in Hebron, and they're going to turn around and meet in the capital because of the covenant, and they're going to have a, a, a feast, a ceremony. So Abner's totally chill, right? He's relaxed. He's not at all worried. He's not on guard. No, that would have been offensive to David. But where's Joab? You see, Joab isn't there. Joab's away at this moment. Joab's going to learn that David has come there because as soon as Joab comes back, everybody's going to say, Abner was here. And David has already given Abner the blessing so that he can return back to where he was going. To attack Abner is to attack David at that point. And that's what we're going to read. That's how offensive this is, just to give you it in context. So Abner and 20 men with him came to Hebron, and David made a feast, verse 20, for Abner and the men were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord and King, and they, make, they may make a covenant with you. So that's what his plan was, right? He says, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the King. So he was going to go on a mission for David that way. Then they would make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Do you see that? He went in peace. That's important. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. No longer an enemy. Now he's a a diplomat for David. 
when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Did you catch that, Joab? You know, the guy that killed your brother? He was here, and David made a covenant with him. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Now remember, that's his uncle. David's his uncle. Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And he's already gone. He's very upset, right? What is he doing? He's actually questioning David. He's questioning David's authority and sovereignty that way. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and coming in and know all that you are doing, right? He's here to spy out your kingdom, David. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Syrah, but David did not know it. He's deceitful. Joab says, hey, David, need, David wants to have another word with you. He's not done. Can you come back? So Abner's coming back. Again, he was sent away in peace. He's coming back in peace because he's thinking that, you know, David's the host. Okay, sure, I'll come back. Now, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside and said, hey, here, before you go in with the king, here, I want to, I want to talk to you about something. And Abner's not thinking anything of it because he's thinking there's peace and there's a covenant. And basically, if Joab would do something so stupid as to harm me, basically, it's like David. It's like, it's like Joab drawing a sword on David, for that matter. So Joab took him aside to the gate and spoke with him privately. And there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashil, his brother. Now, again, vengeance of his brother, right? He, this is, please understand this. This is premeditated murder. Okay, this is not a kinsman, uh, avenger, or redeemer in any capacity like this. What he did was not part of the law. What he did was not according to God's scripture where he says, hey, if somebody murders your brother, then you have a right to go and avenge the avenger of blood. But that's not what happened. If you remember, Ashil had gone out to... because he was fast on foot, right? He went out and chased after Abner. Abner said, go to the side. Take out one of my other guys. If you got to do something, take out one of these other guys. But certainly a general versus general thing should not be happening right now. And instead, he went to strike Abner. And Abner, out of self-defense, again, whether you like the guy or not, right, bully or not, he stabs him. He kills him right then and there. That was self-defense. So there is no vengeance or avenger of blood. There is nothing under the law that would have protected protected Joab. This is sin. This is premeditated murder. Again, I know, I know when we're reading this, we're not in love with Abner right now, right? We're like, ah, he's a, you know, traitor that way, back and forth. But afterward, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Now you know why he responds that way. Because he knew what Joab did was sinful. It was premeditated murder, and David was going to have nothing to do with that, right? He's, he's basically openly declaring he and the people with him are innocent. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, right? So he's talking about these things that would have made you ceremonial unclean who leans on a staff, somebody that maybe had a, a, a cripple-type uh, situation, maybe an ankle that was crippled or something to that effect, um, or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. You, you can see what he's saying. This is pretty, pretty heavy. 
So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner. So now we get more information in verse 30 that when obviously Joab had come over here, apparently Abishai, his brother, was there too. These are both David's nephews that are doing this. Now notice with me that what should David have done right at this moment? David should have taken Joab because of his sin and removed him as the general of his army, right? Because what he did is he disqualified himself. But he doesn't do that. That's one of those character flaws I was talking about with David. There's not many that way. He certainly has a heart after God. But that's one of those things where David compromised. He didn't want to deal with this situation. It was easier for David to say, well, you know, whatever. You know, the curses, you know, the blood be on your head, not on ours. So because he had killed his, their brother Ashiel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner, obviously, because this was murder. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. This was, please understand what was going on at this time. David's a warrior. David's a soldier, okay? This is not an honorable death. Abner, who's a general for Saul, right? This is not an honorable death. You know, this is not how Abner should have gone out. And so David is weeping. He's mourning because he knows what Joab did was completely wrong and incredibly dishonorable. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. You see what he said? As a fool dies. Should he die that way? That, that, that's how disrespectful and unhonorable this death was. Then all the people wept over him again, and when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while, he was still, while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Now that made a big deal, because Benjaminites and all the other tribes that were loyal to Saul saw David's heart and the character of this man, that he truly was mourning out of respect. And that meant a lot to those people. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And am I weak today, although anointed king and these men, the sons of Zariah, are they too harsh for me? The Lord shall repay the evil doing according to his wickedness. We'll read chapter 4 here for the next few minutes, and then we'll close. It's a, it's a short chapter. So uh, at this point, he's been reigning over Judah for about seven and a half years, okay? So just if you want to make a marginal note, it's about seven and a half years at this point. When Saul's son heard, that's the puppet king, that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men, and they were captain of the troops, the name of one was Banah, Banah, and the name of the other was Rechab. The sons of Rimeon the birthright and the children of Benjamin, for Beroth was part of Benjamin. Because the birthrights fled Gideon and have 
been sojourners until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in feet. He was five years old, whom the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him and fled, and it happened as she made haste to flee that she fell, and he became lame. His name was Mehibosheth, right? So clearly we see this nurse, when she was trying to flee, she must have dropped him, either broke his ankle. In those days, they didn't, they didn't have the technology or medical equipment to set bone like we do today. So if you broke a bone many times and it didn't heal right, you were crippled or lame for life. It's, it's not today where they can reset things. Uh, you didn't have the x-rays to be able to see how to reassemble this uh, break here. Then the sons of Rimeon and the Berthrite, Rechab and Benah, set out and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. So he's resting, which would have been, um, you know, very common at that time. If you go to other parts of Europe and the world, Spain, Italy, you know they'll take siestas in the noon. They work a little later. They eat later at night. So they'll take a, like a 12 to 2 kind of a noon thing. It was actually common in this time as well. They would take these like siestas or naps. And they came there all the way into the house and as though to get wheat. Now, everything doesn't look suspicious because this would have been common. They'd come all the way there. They'd come to the house. They'd go in to get wheat. This would have been like a weekly thing. This wouldn't have been anything that would have been surprising. However, what they did is they went, made their all the way, th- way, all the way through. They got into the area where, um, where he was at and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rahab and the Benah, his brothers, escaped. For they came into the house, and he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him. Now, this was terrible. Again, cowardly. This is cowardly. He was innocent. He was resting. He was sleeping. And they took advantage of that. It's like a sucker punch to the face or the stomach. This was a cowardly thing to do. And they beheaded him and took his head, and they were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth. To David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, you know, David's having a deja vu moment, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. Right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to gain position, right? They're trying to gain favor here, right? But David answered Rechabah and Benan, his brother, the sons of Ramon, Ramon, uh, at Berthrite, and Berthrite, I'm, I'm butchering the names. Bear with me. I apologize. And he said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news. That's what I mean about deja vu. He says, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. Remember who that was? The Amalekite. The one who I thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, in his own bed, Therefore, at this point, their, their smiles turn into frowns, right? This is not going according to plan. Therefore, shall I now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? Again, a reminder of uh, 2 Samuel one fourteen. there, chapter 1, verse 14. So David commanded his young men, and they executed him and cut off their hands and feet, you know, just to... Uh, remind that these were the hands or members that were used to, co- to commit this crime. So they cut off the hands and the feet and hang them by the pool in Hebron. Now remember, Hebron's the capital city at this time. So everybody would have been coming through there. So it would have been a reminder for every single person. 
But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. And what they tried to do is give him a respectful burial, but by putting these men up on the wall, which would have been common, or you know, by the pool in Hebron, there, it was showing that they were not even given that same, or they were they were treated as disrespectful as they were when they killed um, Ishbosheth, right? So they got what was fitting for them, right? Well, let's stop there uh, for tonight. Um, go ahead and read uh, chapter 5, 6, uh, read ahead. How many of you, I'm, I'm curious, when I, when I ask, you know, I say read ahead, how many of you actually read ahead? Be honest. Okay, good. Some of you, right? I want to encourage all of you to read ahead. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to read ahead like that and then see what the Lord speaks to your heart. And then you come in and as we're together, then we go through the word together and like the Lord will sometimes show you new things or different things. It's a blessing to do that. I really want to encourage you to do that if you haven't been doing that. Also take notes, have a journal as you're writing these things. What is God using to show you? How is he applying this to your life through the Holy Spirit, right? Well, if you'll stand with me, we'll pray. Friends, again, be encouraged. Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Your redemption draws nigh. You know, God is on the throne. Um, Brandon, why don't you come on? We'll have a closing song. Let's worship our Lord. We got we we finished a little early. Why don't we have a closing song here? Let's bow our heads. We'll pray. Father, we thank you again for your holy word. And Jesus, we just ask that you... Uh, Lord, you comfort our hearts with uncertainty and with the changing of the guard. There's always uh, sometimes fear or doubt or sadness or uncertainty, Lord, that comes. And, and God, for you, nothing has changed. You're the king. You're on the throne. You're madly in love with your people. And we're madly in love with you. And you tell us to look up and to occupy and that our redemption draws nigh. So, Jesus, let us be faithful. Give us the strength that there's, if there's anybody that's I've just been, Lord, I'm just going to say it like I think you're telling me, like sucker punched, Lord, just like Ishbosheth today, thinking things were going to go one way or a different way. Certainly, uh, things weren't going to go the way they did. Maybe there were, maybe there's people here, Lord, that are just struggling with that. And uh, Lord, I pray you comfort them that 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 they would they would really, Lord, we'd all turn our eyes to you, Jesus. And you'd be our source of strength and comfort. And, Lord, you'd be our lead. And no matter what happens these days, Lord, um, you will never allow the gates of hell to prevail against your church, Lord. You will always allow us to be those overcomers. And, Lord, we have nothing to fear, Lord, when we follow you. No matter what, uh, no matter what happens in the coming days, God, no matter how things change, Jesus, we're with you and you will you will hold us ever so close and we just pray for the moving of your holy spirit in our lives and the lives of all around us and that lord in this time we have that many will get saved jesus many will be discipled lord and that god there will be a great revival through this oppression and affliction, if it should come. And Lord, if it doesn't, and people begin to say peace and security, Lord, before they can even utter it, I'm looking up. Because I know, Lord, it's in the twinkling of an eye. You're coming. And Lord Jesus, we are ready. We know the best to come yet, Lord. We know the best is yet to come. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your holy word. And we pray travel mercies here tonight. Amen.
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. Even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you are near. I will fear no Jesus. You never let go of us, Lord. Thank you for your sovereignty, for your grace and love. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we will praise you no matter what in all things, Jesus. And everyone prays. Amen. God bless you all. If you all need anything during the week or